I'm David Pluff, Barack Obama's campaign manager, a longtime campaign strategist. And what I'm really hoping to do with this podcast is bring all of you who are closely following the ins and outs of the primary a little better sense of each of the campaign's view of what their pathway to the nomination is and talk about what really matters in the primary race and what doesn't and let you follow along a little bit more closely and and hopefully a little more educated in terms of what really is going to matter and the three or four most important elements of a Democratic primary campaign. A lot of the people listening might already be affiliated with the primary campaign, so you're going to hear from campaign staff and leadership, and maybe you'll get a better sense of why your volunteer hours and time and commitment can make a difference. So I do think folks will learn about how important that is and be reminded about that. But for those who may not have decided who they're going to vote for, folks who may ultimately not decide to get active in a campaign but want to be active citizens, I think you'll get a better sense of what the various campaigns think their pathway to the nomination is, how they're going to handle the different phases of the campaign. We're in a phase right now where no one's voting or caucusing, and you know, in a few months we're going to get down to real votes, and that's what matters and how that's going to affect the race. And, and ultimately, this is a battle for delegates, just as the presidential campaign in the general election is about one number, 270. That's all that matters. You get 270 electoral votes, you're the next president. You don't, you lose, you're out. You have to get enough delegates. And the person who's able to get 1,990 delegates as a result of their performance in these contests will be our nominee. And so right now there's a lot of pomp and circumstance about who had the good debate line, who raised the most money. All that's important, but what really matters is when people start voting, are you doing what you need to do in the first four states? And then March is going to be just an avalanche of big states voting, a lot of delegates allocated. Are you on track to be the nominee? So... You know, momentum's important part of politics. Performance is an important part of politics. But so is your strategy and your organization and your resilience, because it is rare that anybody wins wire to wire. You're going to win some, you're going to lose some, and do you have the ability to recover from that and go the distance? Because flashes in the pans do not become nominees and do not become presidents. You have to have the durability to execute the entire primary calendar and to do well enough to acquire the delegates to win. Our first guest is the campaign manager for the current Democratic frontrunner, Vice President Joe Biden. Greg Schultz helped Barack Obama turn Ohio blue twice, and now he's steering the Biden effort. Well, I got to know Greg Schultz quite well, both in 2008 and 2012. He was helping lead our campaigns in Ohio. Barack Obama won them twice. They turned blue twice, and they were just absolutely war zones, uh, particularly in 2012 against Governor Romney. And You know, we were in Ohio a lot, uh, particularly in 2012. I went on every campaign trip that President Obama went on, and we were in Ohio a lot. It was like we were running for governor of Ohio, and whether it was Toledo or Dayton or a small rural area or Cincinnati or Columbus or Cleveland, more often than not, Greg would be there. And most importantly, President Obama, but also myself, would have the opportunity to quiz Greg about the state of the organization and what he was seeing out there from the Romney campaigns and the McCain campaign. So this is somebody who understands field organization, understands numbers. Every decision he made was based on what the win number we thought we needed in Ohio was. So, you know, he was always a source of comfort for me, even when things weren't going well, because he wouldn't pretend. He would tell us that we were struggling in a certain part of the state. 
or something that Romney was doing was causing us problems. So, you know, Greg was always somebody I knew we could get the truth from and someone who did a good job of inspiring our, you know, huge organization in Ohio, both staff and volunteers, to execute at their highest level. Greg, thanks a lot for joining us. Hey, thanks, Puff, for the opportunity. Uh, It's great to hear your voice. So let me start with a basic question. What's your job as campaign manager for Joe Biden? So, you know, I I think one of the big things is setting the tone and the culture in the campaign. You know, the goal is to have anyone from the candidate, Joe Biden, down to our volunteer leaders singing from the same hymnal, if you will. And so it's, it's culture setting, it's tone setting, and it's really trying to instill some campaign discipline from the top to the bottom. You know, one of the things I spend a fair amount of time doing is, you know, I'm a big believer in synergy. It is fascinating on campaigns. You've got great staff in the states, great staff at headquarters. You work in kind of a an open area where people can see each other. And I guess the human condition is like you work within your team. And so I think one of the things for, you know, skill sets I bring for, as a campaign manager is really kind of forcing cross-departmental collaboration you know, focusing on synergy between departments so that, you know, we can get more out of digital is integrated with field and comms is integrated with political. Um, One of the other things I think I focus a lot on are, you know, finding the gaps and opportunities. You know, so much of a campaign staffer's life day to day is focused on what's immediately in front of them. And I think one of the goals I try to bring and skill sets I try to bring is making sure we're looking around the corner. We're thinking about next week. We're thinking about next month. We're thinking about not just Super Tuesday, but, you know, what's going on in May and June all the way through a possible convention. We're going to get to May and June later. It's a very important part of this process. Um, How many direct reports do you have, Greg? I have seven direct reports. And, you know, it's people I don't think fully appreciate how these campaigns start you know, as startups and you have zero people and the next day you have 40 people and a few months later you have hundreds of people in multiple states. And, you know, like any startup, I think it's probably one of the campaigns and presidential campaigns in particular, probably some of the fastest startups in the country, uh, just as the the scale and the size. And so, you know, you, you kind of reach these pivot points every few months where you go back, take a look at like what you've been building and how you can, you know, fine tune and structure. And so, you know, we're in this post Labor Day phase right now. And so it's kind of the next gear of a campaign. And so it's like one of the things we've been working on over the summer is, you know, building capacity, but also getting processes under underway. Startup is a great term for it. It's probably it's the only startup in the world, though, where you're okay going out of business after a couple yeah, of years. Exactly. You want to say long enough, but yeah, <laughs> long enough, you right. shut down. So what's your total headcount now in the campaign? We're at a, a few hundred across the country. So, you know, we're obviously heavy in the early states, but Super Tuesday is around the corner. We're trying to keep a lean and efficient headquarters. I think, um, you know, in any type of campaign, sometimes, you know, headquarter growth can outpace, you know, per capita growth in the field. And for us, it's how many field organizers can we have in the early states building those volunteer relationships. So that's really the priority we have right now. Let's talk about one of those early states, Iowa. Yep. What's your current size of your, you know, your operation in Iowa, and what do you think it grows to by early February? Yeah, we're we're right around seventy staff right now, and the vast majority of those staff are field organizers. I think we're we're on par with I think the other, I guess however you want to call them, you know, other tier one campaigns. I guess it's kind of a media term. 
we want to make sure that, you know, Iowa is a state, when you run in a state like Iowa, you're actually running for governor of Iowa. It's first up, uh, just kind of the, the culture that is set there, the, the time investment, the regionalness of the state. It's a heavy lift um, and it tests the system. It's probably a good place to start for now. You know, we're, we're going to grow. Let me just say this. When we raise more resources, the first thought is, where can we expand in Iowa? So I'm not sure where we're eventually going to cap out at. And part of that is, you know, how resources come in. Um, and we're at a good, good pace now. You know, you, you always can have more resources. But certainly the first and foremost is, you know, what can we do for Iowa today? What does the Biden campaign think total turnout in Iowa will be on caucus night? Yeah, you know, it, I, I think given the excitement in in the party, or and it, it may be frustration uh, over the, pre- the the current president Trump. So I think it is excitement. I think it is frustration. I think we we are not going to be surprised if you see record setting turnout. This could surpass anything else. So you think it could go like two fifty or north of that? Yeah, yeah. So in that scenario, let's say it's two hundred fifty thousand, which would be slightly larger than we had in '08. What do you think the winners got to get? So the thing, and I think maybe maybe a good time to talk about this, and and you know. One of the things I appreciate about this podcast is for all of the articles that are written every hour that are posted online over every publication, the actual path to nomination is not necessarily who wins states, although that's a super important component, in particular the first four, but it's actually the path to delegates. And it's earning delegates, and there is a very prescribed way. It varies by congressional district, by state. There's 57 different iterations of what this looks like. And I think, you know, the the interesting thing, um, and I think we're still waiting for the final rules to be, I think at this point, the Rules and the Bylaws Committee of the DNC has not finalized exactly what used to be the virtual caucus may or may not look like. So there is still some, um, I guess, guessing is the wrong word, but there's still some waiting to see finally what are actually the rules we're playing with. But I, But I think one of the things that we're staying focused and disciplined on is that this is a race for delegates. The first four states are certainly about momentum, but the reality is at the end of the day with so many candidates, it is how many delegates can you acquire? And we are looking as we look at each state, obviously you want to quote unquote win the states. And that, you know, depending on who you ask, what does that mean? To me, it means delegates. You run, you can run up the score in one, in one congressional district. It's congressional districts for all the, all the states except for Texas, which is this state Senate races, and then you can get blown out in every other congressional district and really limit your number of delegates. So I think it's important when, and the media just doesn't really cover it because it's just not sexy to talk about delegates. It's much easier to talk about national polling or, or whatnot. For us, it is, can we keep our broad coalition? Can we compete in every congressional district? And in particular, can we outperform congressional districts where the, that district has a unique Joe Biden characteristic or personality trait. So I think obviously, uh, having been through this before, building a campaign strategically on delicate acquisition is smart because like the Electoral College, that's the rules. But as you said, the early states momentum is important and you'd always rather come out of these early contests with momentum. So do you think it's fair to say that given a big field like this, the winner of the Iowa caucuses, and I think it's important to say for you guys, for Sanders, for Warren, you know, you are looking at winning or coming in a close second. There may be some of the other candidates where coming in third or fourth could be a surprise, you know, event that's good for them. But do you think 80 or 90,000 people in Iowa could win it? Yeah. Yeah. 
And, and I think when you look at like the, the 15% threshold, you can have 20 candidates and you can have some congressional districts where two people get delegates. And I think that that's the part that is, I think it will confuse a lot of people, you know, the, the night of the Iowa caucuses, and it will confuse a lot of people in particular, you know, at all subsequent primaries and caucuses they are forward, but you are not talking huge amounts of numbers. And in particular with so many people in the ballot, you know, so many people that are running. I think the other thing is there are so many, I think, well-funded campaigns. That reality is not going to shift until I think after Super Tuesday. Anybody thinks that, you know, everybody wants to win Iowa. I think we have the team to do it. I think we've got the candidate to do it. It certainly helps to win Iowa, but we are looking at a strategy well beyond Super Tuesday. And, you know, this is why Joe Biden candidacy, I think, is so powerful and, and why we have a path to victory, because the coalition is broad, which means when you get to states after Iowa, and in particular states that have congressional districts that demographically are very different, you are going to have Joe Biden competing in every one of them. And you're going to have a number of other, you know, I hate the term, but top tier candidates competing in a much smaller segment just because their support is, you know, whether it's college educated, white voters, where Joe Biden has African-American support, Latino support, blue collar vote support, older, sometimes more moderate Democrats, sometimes more conservative Democrats. And I think that's the piece, even in Iowa, you know, you said it, I said it, the first four states, it's really helpful to win because it impacts momentum. And then momentum does a lot of things, including resource, helps you with resources, which means you can play in more places more aggressively quicker. But what we can never get lost at it is that you become the nominee through delegates. You know, it sounds like you're prepared to go the distance no matter yes. what happens in the first four. The one of the first four, though, that I see is would be particularly challenging if you weren't to win it or maybe come in a strong second would be South Carolina. Do you agree with that? How important is South Carolina, both in terms of showing your share of, of the vote and strength of the African-American community, but also being that gateway to all those important March contests? I think it's a very fair statement to say you should not be the Democratic nominee unless you can win a broad coalition of support. In particular, you know, the, 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 one of the anchors of the Democratic Party has been the African-American community and the African-American vote. And you should not be the nominee if you can't prove you can win that. And yeah, for everybody, including us, and I think in particular, we start with some very strong relationships. And because they know Joe Biden, they've known him for decades. They know him as Barack Obama's vice president. He has spent the time in a state like South Carolina going back decades, and we're going to invest in that. But no, it is it's totally fair to say that whoever's going to be the nominee has to show they can get broad support in particular the African-American community, and that is first tested in South Carolina. Let's talk about post-South Carolina. So, you know, there's going to be a great winnowing occurring over the next five months. Some people will drop out before Iowa. Some will drop out after Iowa, after New Hampshire. And then I think we'll really be down to the finalists or semifinalists after South Carolina. Have you guys thought about when you think about uh, assuming you've done what you need to do in the first four states so that you still have a plausible route to the nomination? Would you prefer March and April to be Joe Biden and one other candidate? Would you prefer it to be Joe Biden and two or three other candidates? Do you guys have a sense of what would be best for you in terms of how those chips fall? Yeah. You know, one is I think there's no way that there are not going to be three, at least three extremely strong candidates well through Super Tuesday. You know, right now it's Senator Sanders and Senator Warren. I don't see that changing. That that might. There may be some people added to it. You know, one of the things I think we should also mention that unlike 2016, 
the primary calendar is weighted, it's much more condensed. By the end of March, I believe, it's something like 70% of the overall delegates are going to be awarded. And so, you know, you're, you're talking a fairly finite time from the beginning of February. You're talking about 58, 62 days where a lot is going to happen. And I think, you know, that your, your question, I think, is fair and, I'll, and I'll, I'll answer it. I think the reality is, is it's going to be multiple candidates. It's going to at least be, it's going to be, I think, more than three. But I think you're going to have the two I mentioned and Joe Biden, you know, through those two months. I think when you look at the broad coalition that Joe Biden has and his ability to hold a percentage of the vote greater than 15 percent in literally every congressional district in the country, whatever you, you want, the other piece subdivided into other chunks. And so that happens, you know, when there's more candidates. And so we're super confident because we've got the candidate, we've got the team, we've got the message that we can hold on to our greater than 15 percent vote in every congressional district. It was great if that's subdivided by others. It helps. I want to come back to those March contests in a minute, but just hearing you talk about 15% as kind of, you know, a floor you think you'll have in most congressional districts, it's fair to say the Sanders and Warren campaigns might feel the same. And so do you think it's likely, and are you guys planning for a candidate, presumably you think that's you, being able to get a majority of the pledged delegates, which I think is, what, 1,990? Or do you think we could be in a scenario where no one gets that majority? Maybe there's somebody who has a plurality, but we could be heading to the dreaded, you know, convention fight in Milwaukee. You love this answer. You know, we've got an amazing uh, data scientist, our analytics director, Becca. And uh, we, we posed this question to her, like, what are the chances for, you know, quote unquote, brokered convention? And she gave a great like, data scientist answer. She said, not zero. <laughs> so, so because the, the, the chances were not zero, we'll prepare for it until it is zero. And, you know, part of the thing is you've got to make right now when people are looking at you know, modeling, you know, their voter, you've got to model with the information you have in front of you. And right now it's 20 plus candidates. There's so many unknowns. The reality is, is right now it's not zero. Now we may find by February 20th, it is zero because X number of people have dropped out. You know, a certain candidate has prepared, you know, this many delegates. And, and at some point you just can't get votes or delegates. You know, once you pass a couple of the contests, it's not like you can go back and, and reclaim more of those. So right now, with our great data team, it says it is a not zero proposition that this goes the distance. We will prepare for that. But I also want to say, you know, it is worth us thinking about it, planning for it. There is very conceivable that in five months we will stop planning for it. But I think it would be um, uh, malpractice as a, for our campaign if it is not zero to not at least put thought, structure, and a plan in place for that possibility. Well, that'll probably give everybody listening heart palpitations. Yep. But, uh, yeah, no, I would, I would love, like no, trust me, I, I would love for that not to go that route. But, you know, until that's uh, zero, we're going to prepare for it. So let's talk about those March states. So the job you're doing now, campaign manager, I mean, it's hard enough. You've got, um, you know, debates and you've got to raise resources and hire staff and make sure you're hitting your numbers. But in a way, it's a little bit more peaceful, right? Because you're spending most of your time in Iowa when you're not fundraising. So I'm in New Hampshire, Nevada, South Carolina. Once you get out of South Carolina, it's hard to describe how that changes, yeah. right? You go from focusing on one state at a time to most of the country Thir voting. I think it's 13. Big states, uh, yeah, California, Florida, yeah. Illinois, with a lot of them beginning to vote early in February. So 
as you, obviously, you're spending a lot of your time on those early states, but what are you guys doing to advantage yourself so that you're, you're able to execute well in those states in March? Again, some of them vote in, start voting in February to acquire the amount of delegates that you've modeled that you need. One is getting back to our analytics team. They, you know, when you talk about on a Super Tuesday, and I, I don't even know the total number of congressional districts you have up, but it's 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 immense. We have a a pretty good understanding of you know we we compete in every congressional district because of the broad coalition we have, but in particular we we have a chance to you know quote run up the score in, in some congressional districts that look more like the Joe Biden support and the broad support compared with other candidates, even you know the other two. So I think that allows us to make political investments. And so, you know, all voters are, are equal, but some are, you know, uh, worth more earlier in a process and all endorsements and all community leader support is important. But, a, you know, community leader support, a influential and active mayor with a grassroots team in a place where we have a chance on Super Tuesday to outperform and run up kind of the delegate score is a smarter strategic investment in time. And so we've we've got mapped out now, in particular, you know, Super Tuesday and a little bit further into March, you know, what is our priority congressional districts? And so that helps us influence, you know, as we start thinking about earned media opportunities, as we start thinking about political, um, you know, political support to build. It also allows us in when we talk about like, you know, distributive organizing and where you don't necessarily have to have a field organizer on the ground, but can do it, you know, like a lot of campaigns have done and the, the Obama campaign certainly, you know, mastered um, in, in 08 and into 12. But is this organizing, you know, self-organizing in some ways with support? This allows you to kind of prime the pump in some of these places. I think also getting an understanding of the digital reach, I think in a Super Tuesday state to to play on broadcast is so cost prohibitive in almost every you're talking a huge states that you know are million would be millions of dollars a week on TV if if it was just the only state you were in so i think you know making sure you have an understanding of of who you think your voter are and the 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 persuasion conversations you need to have to get their support on a digital the investment in political relationships and community contacts and then you know making sure that when you're organizing you know online and offline, that those those are targeted. And all of that will help, you know, now, if you win Iowa, if you're Joe Biden and you win Iowa, that helps you, that helps you New Hampshire, right. helps you in South Carolina. If we do well in South Carolina, that certainly helps you on Super Tuesday. That's not a revolutionary statement for me. So, so some of this, I don't want to say it's dependent, but it's certainly fueled by doing well in the other places. But because we, we are afforded such broad support and so many parts of the Democratic Party, we're able to, I guess, plant some seeds now, um, you know, that hopefully we will be able to, you know, when 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 resources and candidate time, which is the most precious resource we have, become more available, we'll have an easier time kind of plugging them in for hopefully rapid growth. So you mentioned distributed organizing and, and obviously uh, using digital much more effectively in those states. You've been on the front lines these last few cycles, so really seeing how politics has evolved in terms of tools and technology and data. Are there new innovations that you guys are deploying in your campaign that are beyond what we saw in 16 or 12? You know, um, so so I do want to take a second about, you know, the talking about how we're organizing. And I think one of the things, and I want to make sure we cover it, like one of the most important 
data points that we look like and look at and that I look at as a campaign manager is, you know, the one-on-one. And that that is, you know, a staffer's time invested with a potential volunteer or a volunteer leader. And so much of what we do is how do we how do we attract potential volunteers and then how do we invest the time in them through a one-on-one? And so we are trying some creative approaches with, you know, some digital assets with, you know, the, the, when the candidates time about recruiting volunteers and then really investing in the one-on-one time. We also, one of the things I like about our tech team is we're not necessarily looking to, you know, build, we're, we're looking to make things effective and efficient. And I think, at the end of the day, all of these like tools and resources that we've talked about that have been around, you know, 2004 in particular and then beyond, it's all about how can you make a field organizer or a caucus captain or a precinct captain's life more effective and more efficient. And we are working on, you know, both through some digital outreach uh, and then just really just it's it's in some ways, I don't want to say what's old is, is new again, but at the end of the day, it's a relationship with the neighbor and that's the investment we're making now. We are we are working to grow that you know volunteer list, you know through a number of digital means. Um, but at the end of the day, it's about investments on with a volunteer, and it's about prioritizing that one-on-one conversation that our staff has with a volunteer and a volunteer leader has with potential volunteers. And so that's that's right. the real focus, and the, the the tools and tactics are important. But like the real revolutionary part of this is good old-fashioned one-on-ones. So let's talk about that a little bit. And, and you mentioned both your volunteers and supporters. There's been some recent stories suggesting that your campaign believes that political insiders and those covering the race uh, in the press don't really understand both the ultimate Democratic primary electorate and your supporters specifically. So I'm curious. So first of all, if you had to, maybe you know, but if you had to estimate what percentage of the people who are going to vote in a primary or a caucus for Joe Biden are like on Twitter. Yeah, I, I do think that the, the national statistic is something like one in five people have a Twitter account. And I don't think that even means they use Twitter. And I have to imagine, I, 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 so I don't know specifically, but I know, you know, 20% of Americans have one, whether or not they use it. And I know there's been some ta- there, some articles um, lately about the disconnect between Twitter in particular and actual voters. And I think one of the one of the I think frustrations, you know, hopefully a lot of people have is that there is an over-reliance on tweets and an under-reliance on actually what's actually happening on the ground. And I don't want to, you know, I let me just say it's really easy to, you know, look at your Twitter feed, see something and write a story on it. And the, the problem is, is that you are, if you are looking at that Twitter feed, you are already seeing a myopic view of not only the country d- conversation, but in particular, the Democratic Party conversation. And I think when you look at like Joe Biden's, you know, broad coalition, a lot of the, a, a, a large part of the coalition are, are blue collar, blue collar workers, um, you know, older and, and middle age, you know, voters, African-American and Latino. I, 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 I you know, I, I I believe that when you look at, you know, Twitter in particular and you look at, you know, the the college educated white voter, I, I I don't have the stats in front of me, but I actually I, I think that I remember seeing in one of these articles, I think that like a larger percentage of like the Twitter universe looks like that. Now, of course, you can look at certain candidates 
that are running for president. And that also is the, the plurality of their support. And so you get a very warped perspective on like what is actually happening on the ground. And in some ways it's frustrating. In other ways, it's like, fine. It's like, it's like in 2016, like look at national polls. They're fun to look at, but do they really tell you what's going on? No. You know, if people want to look at Twitter, great. For me, it's it's stressful, not even on a campaign. It's just, it just uh, you know, it's just a place where I think it's so easy to hate on anything, the Cleveland Browns or, or, or a candidate. Um, so I just don't think it's a healthy place in particular for actual vision into what's happening. And so, yeah, it, it's it's a frustration. But you know what? We're, we're, we're saying discipline and focus. And I think that's one of the things we have to do. And I think one of the things I, I try to focus on as a campaign manager, we know the path. We have a good sense of who our voters are. You know, they know our candidate. We can't get distracted from the 24-hour news cycle, which, you know, I think disproportionately lives off of Twitter. And it's so easy to get sweeped up into it. And, you know, when you look at, like, what's happening on the ground, you look what's happening on Twitter, um, thankfully, you know, local media, when you look at local media coverage in a state like Iowa or New Hampshire or South Carolina or Nevada versus what you would see on 24-hour news cycle or Twitter— you would think you're talking about two completely different events. And for us, you know, at the end of the day, we're, get, we're getting the local f- coverage when we travel with the messages that Joe Biden's actually talking about. And we're just really trying to stay disciplined to not get caught up in, you know, the Twitterverse, which does not represent what's actually happening. Right. Well, the Twitterverse definitely goes into overdrive around debates. So I'm curious for you guys as, as still the Democratic frontrunner, I think that's fair to say, are these debates something you have to endure or do you see them as opportunities? Yeah. You know, if they were actual debates, they would probably be good opportunities. But, you know, when you have 10 candidates now in the last, you know, the last one was probably a little bit different. But in particular, the first two, it really felt like there was and it's you can't candidates were incentivized to attack because you basically make your point, attack somebody. That person gets like 30 seconds to respond to your attack. And then, you know, someone will get a last word and attack again. And then it's, you know, the candidate's time to speak. And they've got to respond to a previous attack rather than talk about, like, what they're for. And I think there is a worry that these debates, you know, the winner of these debates is Donald Trump. Because, you know, if you look at segments of these debates, they, they basically are Democrats going after other Democrats on things that three years ago, four years ago, everybody was celebrating. Things like Obamacare. So I think and, and we'll, maybe if the number of people participating shrinks and you actually have, you know, debates turn into actually thoughtful conversations or at least more than 30 second sound bites, it would be fruitful for the Democratic primary and caucus goers. But 10 people on stage giving 30 second sound bites where you were rewarded for 140, something that fits into 140 characters. It's it's the process we're doing it. But, you know, I, I think the party, um, I think the voters will be, will, will be better served when it is actually a more substantial conversation. Well, man, you're going to have a lot more of these to endure. Yes. That's uh, no, it's, one uh, yes. piece of math we, we, know. we know. So I don't want to spend much time on the debates. They've been picked apart. But but um, the debate on health care, so this is a less about the debate stage. But my question for you is over the next few months leading into the early states, you've got Vice President Biden most prominently, but a few other candidates too in what I would consider the Medicare for all who won it camp. And then you've got some candidates, uh, Senator Harris, Warren, Sanders, in the Medicare for all. Do you think that in, you know, barns and diners in Iowa and town halls in South Carolina, New Hampshire, like, is this going to become the campaign within a campaign over the next few months that you think is going to be incredibly important? 
Or do you think these skirmishes more often happen on the debate stage and are not a day-to-day part of the campaign? Yeah, you know, the, 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 the Obamacare, um, whether we protect Obamacare and grow upon it or whether we scrap it and start over, I do think that is one that is one of the pieces that I think is going to spill over from the debates. And one is, you know, when you poll, what do you care about? You know, jobs, economy, healthcare, education, uh, almost almost every year, almost every poll, there's some variation of that. And so one, the topic of itself is always at the top of voters' minds. And and, and two is, I think, it points to, I think, a when you look at the, camp- the candidates running, you know, there are a couple campaigns and I... You know, I'm not looking to get uh, you know a bunch of tweets sent my way, um, but but I do think I I do think that there is a let's do this Medicare for all, which you know when you talk to voters in Iowa, and I'm sure you know there'll be when you talk to the voter in Iowa, you know it's like how are you going to get this done? It's interesting that you know when you look at con- fairly consistent polling. It's like, what do Democratic primary voters look for? Someone who can beat Trump and someone who can actually get something done. And sometimes they include words like work with Republicans to get something done. I think when you look upon building upon Obamacare, you know, um, expanding to a public option versus scrap everything and start all over again. um, I, I think I do think that there is something that resonates with voters that just says, you know, like, let's make this better. But. You know, I don't know if scrapping and st- scrapping this and starting over again. So, so I actually think this is going to spill over, and I, I do think it is a very clear. Um, um, there are two paths. There's Joe Biden, and you mentioned a handful, a handful of others, and then you've got the, you know two of the other leading candidates who are candidates, you know, who are very clear on this Medicare for all, and, and so no, th- th- this one, this one is going to resonate with voters, and I think have an impact on people's votes. Buckle your seatbelts, folks. Yep. I think uh, I think this is going to get interesting in the states. So, uh, you know, Greg, coming out last to debate, your candidate's getting some grief for record player, although vinyl's pretty hip these days. Yep. So, one question I have: uh, both you and your two major opponents at the moment, uh, at least based on polling, uh, Sanders and Warren, and then of course the person you hope to face off with in the general Donald Trump, all in your seventies. Do you think there's a chance, um, you know, as we get closer to the early states, that that provides an opening? For a younger, fresher face, or do you think that the three candidates at the top right now are strong enough that it, it's hard for somebody to kind of shoot the gap up the middle? Yeah, I think that the um, and you just never know with this, so I, I never want to say like you know the the top three are set because I, I I don't know that and I'd be lying if I said yeah I think that's locked. I, but part of this game, you know, not the game, but part of what you kind of game out in your head is like what fundamentally alters you know, what? what is going to fundamentally shift the trajectory of this race, which has actually been fairly constant for the last six months. And it's hard to interject, at least for someone like Joe Biden, what so much has already been thrown at him. And, you know, when you look back two months, three months, a month ago, th- th- there's a lot of stability kind of in those numbers. And so I am sure it can change. You know, every day, part of what I spend, you know, a few minutes every day and and talking to people smarter than me is like, what is going to fundamentally alter that paradigm? I I haven't identified it yet. Others haven't identified it for me. Um, And so so I do think there is some stability in this piece. Um, And when you talk about, you know, you know, President Trump and you talk about, you know, the two other candidates outside of Joe Biden who are all over their 70s, I do think that there is a hunger that is not caught 
on social media. It's obviously not caught, therefore, by a lot of like the the media, you know, the media elite who cover so much of this. But there is a hunger for stability. There is a hunger for common sense. There is a hunger for the ability to get something done. And that's why I think, you know, Joe Biden with a broad coalition is like well positioned, you know, to, to keep kind of the the. I guess not stability is the wrong word, but to kind of keep the trajectory of the last six months going for the foreseeable future. Speaking of stability, I'm of the mind that that maybe the Democratic nominee's tagline should simply be, you know, I'm not going to tweet about the little things and spend my time focusing on the big things. Yeah, somebody told me there was some poll, and I haven't seen it, but something like, you know, four out of 10 Americans think we may tweet ourselves into a war, or that may have just been an anecdote and not an actual statistic, but there is a real, I think... um, you know, concern out there that like we need we need somebody who will move us forward, but also in particular the world order provides some stability. So I do think that's another advantage we have. Okay, let's put a smile on your face here. So Joe Biden has won the nomination. He accepts his party's uh, mantle in Milwaukee. You move on to the general election. If Joe Biden is the nominee against Donald Trump, what do you think the core battleground states will be? One of the things that makes Joe Biden an attractive candidate. It sets us up in the primary, but also in a general election is he is one of the few people in our dem- in our party that you can take to any congressional district in the country. Now, it doesn't mean, you know, you can take him to the reddest of red and the bluest of blues. And, and he can at least walk in. It doesn't mean he's going to switch, you know, a state or a congressional district that leans far right, but he can walk in any congressional district on either side of the spectrum. I think if if we're fortunate, and I think we're working for every vote to be the nominee, you know, there there you you can just go right up, you know, and I, I'm a Midwestern in Ohio, and so you can look at you know Michigan, Wisconsin. I think people forget, you know, Minnesota. We barely won Minnesota. Trump is making a lot of efforts in Minnesota to gain ground. So we need a candidate who can do well in Minnesota, Wisconsin, Ohio, Pennsylvania. Um, you know, but we also need. I also think. In particular, the support Joe Biden has among the African-American and Latino populations, there is no reason that, you know, Georgia, Arizona um, wouldn't, cer- wouldn't certainly be on, on the list. Now, you know, um, we are getting way ahead of ourselves. And I know you, you, you put this as to have a kind of a general election conversation. So I don't want to, you know, be presumptuous. But, but I don't think there's any other candidate who would expand the battleground map more than Joe Biden. And I know How about Florida, know, Florida and, 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 you know, who, who knows on Texas and it's, and you never want to like overread, you know, you know, these polls, but, you know, there's been a lot of hard work done in Texas over, over years to, to increase voter registration. And, you know, who knows where the world is going to be in November, 2020, but if, if Joe Biden is the nominee, we will, we will be playing in a lot of states now. You know, as as campaign goes, you always you know take a look at what you're doing and you know make resource allocations, and you have to, and that's prudence and it's just a, a fact of life. But on the day on the day, if we're fortunate to win the nomination, you're looking at a lot of states that are worth that are worth looking into um, engaging in in a very serious way. What is the best part of your job and the worst part of your job? I know you're going to say you have no worst parts of yeah. your job, but you know I don't, I don't think people realize as a you know as a campaign manager like you deal it's a large it's a mid-sized and growing company company's the wrong word but when when you think about like you know 
we do HR and we do contracts and, and, you know, we've got a legal team that handles all of that. But, but there are, um, you know, you're running a couple hundred person organization that is growing extremely quickly. I mentioned like zero to a few hundred in a few months. So, you know, and I think, and if you've been around, everybody thinks like you sit around and like strategize all day. And that, that is an important piece. And part of, you know, the roles of campaign managers is to like look around the corner. But the actual execution and actually implementing is the vast majority of the work we do. And it is, it is I think, you are you are both a political strategist and most importantly, I think, implementer and empowerer. But you also have to deal like, oh, geez, there's this um, lease um, in Iowa that we're having some issue in. Now, it doesn't mean like I don't deal with all, all of issues like that. But, but you know, these are, these are big organizations that grow quickly. And you have the normal – you have the normal just growth pains of any startup from zero to a few hundred. So I think that that, that is one, um, you know, when, when you have just internal time that doesn't allow you to focus on tomorrow. Um, I think the best part is I personally, I think, you know, I, I love building teams. It's like it's like one of my passions. I love like the the empowering of staff. I, I am, you know, it was so I, I remember back now, January, February, March, all these articles like he won't be able to hire staff that's good and experienced. And I will take our staff at the state level, and national level against any campaign out there today without question. And so my, my favorite part is getting to work. And see the growth within, you know, some of our staff. And there are so many rock stars who, you know, I, I want Joe Biden to be the nominee and the president for a, a million reasons. You know, first is that it's what this country needs. But I'm also excited to see the growth and development in some of our amazing staff at the state and national level. And that's the stuff that I really, you know, energizes me and just seeing kind of the professional development and seeing what our team is able to do with like the great volunteer leaders that they're getting on board. How much sleep are you getting? Uh, you know, I have a 14-month-old at home. Um, well, in, you know, we're, we're in Philly, so I, I you know, unfortunately, I'm, I'm only back in in DC on on the weekends. So the good thing is, I've had a number of, and he's been a good, relatively good sleeper. But I've also now had, I think, you know, 14 months of conditioning. So I'm getting enough. I think what people have to realize, and we take like mental health very seriously. We're encouraging our staff to take some time off before, you know, December when it gets really complicated because elections are right around the corner. So I'm getting enough. Um, and this, if we're fortunate to be the nominee, um, this, th- we're talking 14 more months. And so you, you, while we are sprinting a lot, um, you cannot go to a full sprint. You start making poor decisions. So I'm, I'm getting enough. <laughs> that was a very diplomatic yep. answer. But one of the reasons, enough probably means like four or five. But the reason I think sometimes campaign managers don't get much sleep is, you know, they're thinking about things right before they go to sleep. And when they wake up, it's not just the work. So... Like what's keeping you up? If let's say Joe Biden is not the nominee or doesn't put his hand on the Bible on January twentieth, twenty twenty one as our next president, why hasn't that happened? What 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 keeps you up? What could go wrong? Yeah, and and, and it goes back, and I mentioned it a little bit ago. Is like what is there has been? I'll, I'll tell you, I I don't know. I'll just speak for myself. I, I don't know if I fully anticipated that the there would be this much constant. That that the and not that we overread polling because I don't want to always say like everything is like well polls remain constant and polls they're informative they don't tell the full truth but they are informative and there's been such consistency I really I 
you know, I believe that like there can be fundamental shifts in that. But I, but it is like I don't know where I don't know what shifts the paradigm. And if you don't know what shifts the paradigm or changes the paradigm, it's like, well, how can you prepare for it? And so that is the like what what allows another campaign to make, uh, you know, to take over our mantle as the holder of the broad coalition. Now, we're fortunate we have such good relationships for so long. And Joe Biden has earned so much goodwill with so many people championing so many, you know, important issues that are important to communities across this country that that I don't I don't know if I see that coalition eroding and we're putting the work to keep it and grow it. And it's like, okay, well, what what is some other candidate? What can they do? And it it is how do we keep that broad coalition and that unknown of how we lose it? And of course, you lose it if you don't work. So we're we're doing those. We're doing the blocking and tackling. It is that paradigm shift, which is like this isn't destiny. Um, you know, right. I, this is all heart and hustle that our campaign's putting into it. But that that is the piece that I like. It would be really it'd be easier if you're like, okay, well, if, if this changes and it changes because of this, then that that alters the game. But we've had such consistency. Well, that's what makes this job, your job, and, and this business so challenging is it's hard to, uh, can't always anticipate, you know, the the changes that are going to come. So listen, uh, Greg Schultz, thank you for your time. I think it was great to hear your and, and the Biden campaign's theory on the case and, and your path to the nomination. And we'll be watching closely over the weeks and months to see uh, how close to uh, what you've laid out things end up aligning. So uh, thanks for your time. Well, thank you. And this this podcast, I think, is so needed in the discourse uh, of this 2020 cycle. So I'm excited about, I feel honored uh, to be your first guest and excited to see where this goes because these are important conversations that, you know, for all of the articles being written every day, I, I don't think any of them are touching some of the topics that you're talking about that actually are how you become the nominee in the Democratic Party. So thank you. Well, sure, man. I mean, I don't know how many of us there are out there, right? But uh, but those of us that understand, um, you know, how these things are won, and it's it's the primary around delicate acquisition, but of course the general election. I mean, I wish we'd go to a popular vote. We're not going to you. All that matters in those last five months of the general election is 270 electoral votes. And we talked a little bit about where you think Joe Biden could provide strength. So appreciate that. Hang in there. And uh, we'll be following closely. I think what was interesting about our conversation was, you know, the Biden campaign clearly believes that they have the most broad based support. So enough support with Latinos and African-Americans and college educated whites and rural white voters and older voters. And some of those he may right now be the leading candidate, but they think they're going to get enough votes from all the different elements of the Democratic coalition. And so that really is going to be the test. As Greg said, the thing that keeps him up at night is he doesn't know how that paradigm could change. But what if that changes? What if one candidate or two candidates really begins to threaten them for their strength in those parts of the Democratic coalition? So that's quite interesting. And clearly, I think the Biden campaign believes that the campaign that's unfolding day to day is different than the one that's largely being covered by the media and that what they're building in these states is strong and resilient and deep enough to win. So ultimately, the voters will be the test of that. But I thought that was interesting and that clearly the Biden campaign is beginning to spend considerable time and and even resources thinking about the states that come after South Carolina. Most of the country is going to vote in March. Most of the delegates will be awarded by the end of March. 
And so um, they're clearly being very focused on that, I think, with a belief that even if they stumble in some of the early states, they think they've got that broad-based coalition to continue. And I think that is a fundamental question. Uh, When front-runners stumble, sometimes it's hard for them to arrest that fall. The balloon's been pierced, and the air comes out, and it's hard for them to regain their strength. Other times, front-runners, I mean, we lost New Hampshire in 2008. Barack Obama came back from that. John McCain obviously beat George W. Bush in 2000 in New Hampshire, and and Bush bounced back from that. Hillary Clinton was challenged by Bernie Sanders in in Michigan and and New Hampshire. So I think that is going to really be the question for Joe Biden is, is he able to withstand adversity? And so I think sometimes frontrunners have to win, and they have to win out, because if they begin to lose momentum, that can be a really dangerous dynamic. But other times we've seen historically frontrunners can withstand an unexpected loss or an opponent who may be the shiny thing for a period of time. And that's really the question of can they keep enough of their coalition together that they have right now to withstand that. So we won't know that until we get into February. And if Joe Biden doesn't do as well as they would like to do or as they're expected to do in states like Iowa and South Carolina, can they withstand that? So I think that's interesting to me is they're clearly building a campaign for the long haul trying to do as well as they need to do in the first four. But we'll see at the end of the day, if they stumble, whether they have that resiliency to move past those stumbles and do what they need to do later in the calendar.